This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Weekend is taking a little break. So for the next two weeks, the team is picking some of their favourite pieces from the last few months, just in case you missed them. Coming up, historian Lucy Worsley unfolds the mystery disappearance of best-selling author Agatha Christie. Fashion editor Jess Cartner-Morley talks to singer and actress Willow Smith about her complicated relationship with the limelight. And finally, journalist Bronwyn Adcock gains a little insight from a radical Buddhist nun on the secret to happiness. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, in 1926, the world's best-selling author, Agatha Christie, vanished for 11 days. Did she really go into hiding to frame her husband for murder? Historian Lucy Worsley reopens a case still shrouded in mystery. Read by Neve Cusack. Agatha Christie was sitting quietly on a train when she overheard a stranger saying her name. In the carriage, she said, were two women discussing me both with copies of my paperback editions on their knees. They had no idea of the identity of their fellow passenger and proceeded to discuss the most famous author in the world. I hear, said one of the ladies, she drinks like a fish. I love this story because it sums up so much about Agatha Christie's life. They both had her paperbacks. Of course they did. Christie wrote more than 80 books, outsold only by Shakespeare and the Bible, so the cliché runs. And she wasn't just a novelist either. She remains history's most performed female playwright. She was so successful, people think of her as an institution, not as a breaker of new ground. But she was both. And then, in the railway carriage, there's the watchful presence of Christie herself unnoticed. Yes, she was easy to overlook, as is the case with nearly any woman past middle age. But she deliberately played on the fact that she seemed so ordinary. It was a public image she carefully crafted to conceal her real self. 
If the women on the train had asked her profession, she'd have said she had none. When an official form required her to put down what she did, the woman who is estimated to have sold two billion copies always wrote, Housewife. Despite her gigantic success, she retained her perspective as an outsider and onlooker. She sidestepped a world that tried to define her. When I told people I was writing about Christie, their first questions were often about the 11 dramatic days in 1926 when she disappeared at the height of her writing career, causing a nationwide hunt for her corpse. It's a mystery that has obsessed her fans ever since. By this stage, Christie was already a celebrity. The murder of Roger Ackroyd, her ingenious masterpiece, had just been published and her literary agent was pushing for a follow-up. There were photos of her in the Daily Mail, a new publishing contract with William Collins and a £500 advance for serial rights to the man in the brown suit that paid for a Morris Cowley car. By December 1926, her marriage to Archie Christie was in trouble. She herself, she later wrote, was at the beginning of a nervous breakdown. The couple had moved to a grand 12-bedroom house in Sunningdale, Berkshire, which they named Stiles. But Archie was often absent, and Agatha was increasingly unhappy there. The death of her beloved mother and Archie's unsympathetic response, he didn't even go to the funeral, had strained their relationship almost to breaking point when Archie confessed that he was in love with someone else, a young woman called Nancy Neal, and wanted a divorce. It has often been claimed that Christie went into hiding in order to frame her husband for her murder. Was this true? It's also frequently said that Christie remained silent about this notorious incident for the rest of her life. But that's incorrect, and I've pieced together the surprising number of statements she did in fact make about it. What Christie said has the unfortunate effect of sounding like one of her novels, in which the loss of memory plot would feature time and time again. But her writings about her life have had this novelising tendency all along. It doesn't mean she is lying. I just wanted my life to end, she explained. All that night I drove aimlessly about. In my mind there was the vague idea of ending everything. I drove automatically down roads I knew, to Maidenhead, where I looked at the river. I thought about jumping in, but realised that I could swim too well to drown. Then back to London again, and then on to Sunningdale. From there I went to Newlands Corner. She was tired. She was in deep distress. At last she put into action a vague plan that had occupied her thoughts for the previous 24 hours. When I reached a point in the road which I thought was near the quarry I had seen in the afternoon, I turned the car off the road down the hill towards it. I left the wheel and let the car run. The car struck something with a jerk and pulled up suddenly. I was flung against the steering wheel and my head hit something. Christie's car was found lodged in a hedge, its front wheels over the edge of the chalk pit. Had it not been for the hedge, the car would have plunged over and been smashed to pieces. It seems that Christie shocked herself into realising that whatever happened, life was worth living. And so, dazed, 
Distressed but alive, she got out of her car. With injuries from the impact to her head and chest, she walked through the wintry countryside in a dreamlike state. She was reborn. Up to this moment, I was Mrs. Christie, she explains. Now she had sloughed off the past like a dead skin. Only that way could she survive. She abandoned her car and walked away, out of her old life. This was the action that would leave her family, friends and the police absolutely flummoxed. For a long time, people investigating Christie's disappearance have tended towards one of two positions. One is that, in the days after the crash, she was experiencing the specific condition of dissociative fugue, a state brought on by trauma and stress in which you literally forget who you are. The alternative position is that she was faking it, even trying to frame Archie for killing her. Only one thing can be said for certain. On Saturday, the 4th of December, 1926, and for some days thereafter, Christie experienced a distressing episode of mental illness brought on by the trauma of the death of her mother and the breakdown of her marriage. She lost her way of life and her sense of self. So what should we believe? Christie reported that on that Saturday morning, while the police were investigating her abandoned car, she had lost her memory. With the help of a psychotherapist, she would later begin to put together a narrative of the movements she had blanked out. I remember arriving at a big railway station, she recalled eventually, and being surprised to learn it was Waterloo. It is strange, she said that the railway authorities there did not recall me, as I was covered with mud, and I had smeared blood on my face from a cut on my hand. Christie's mind began to protect itself from further pain by inventing a new identity. I had now become, in my mind, Mrs. Theresa Neal of South Africa, she says. Someone who had the same surname as Archie's lover. Someone who came from a place where she and Archie had been happy. You can't write your fate, Christie would say years later, but you can do what you like with the characters you create. So she created a new character for herself, a character as which she could do what she wanted. What she wanted most of all was to escape from the unbearable life of Mrs. Christie. Theresa Neal went to King's Cross and bought a ticket for the spa resort of Harrogate. The winter light must have faded by the time her train arrived. She took a taxi to a hotel, apparently picked at random, called the Hydropathic. She'd always liked the anonymity of hotels, where she'd often stayed, alone, writing. Christie arrived with no suitcase, but explained she had recently come from South Africa and had left her luggage with friends. She gave her name as Mrs. Theresa Neal, signing the register in her usual handwriting. Mr. W. Taylor, the hotel's manager, stated later that his guest took a good room on the first floor, fitted with hot and cold water. The price of seven guineas a week caused her no hesitation. She seemed to have as much money as she wanted. Christie's room was serviced by a young chambermaid named Rosie Asher, who seems to have kept a particularly close eye on her. Asher spotted that Mrs. Neal had brought hardly anything with her but she was desperate for her life to unfold in an orderly fashion. 
so she went down for dinner and even took part in the evening's dancing. The guests, who were also referred to as patients, embraced this single woman in their midst. I danced with Mrs. Christie the evening she arrived, one of them said later. She does the Charleston, but not very well. Christie seemed to enjoy her life in limbo. Her chambermaid noted that on Sunday, while police were searching the Surrey Downs for her or her body, she slept in until 10 a.m., had breakfast in bed, and then went out. On Monday morning, Asher noticed Christie had the London newspaper taken up with breakfast in bed. It would have been hard to avoid the story about Mrs. Christie's disappearance, but she somehow managed to set the knowledge aside. She began to equip herself with a new wardrobe. Later that day, after a visit to the shops, packages began to be delivered to her room. New hat, coat, evening shoes, books and magazines, pencil and fruit, and various toilet requisites. People noticed that she usually had a book in her hand. She'd been to the W.H. Smith Library in Parliament Street, where the librarian gathered from her selections that she had a taste for novels of sensation and mystery. That evening, Christy came down to dinner in a proper evening dress with a new fancy scarf. Hotel staff would report that she has made a number of friends. She played billiards and even sang aloud. Miss Corbett, the hotel's entertainment hostess, spotted that Mrs. Neal still had the price, 75 shillings, pinned to her new shawl. Is that all you are worth? asked one of the guests. I think I am worth more than that, was her answer. At the Hydro, people were beginning to suspect who Mrs. Neal really was. After all, on Tuesday the 7th of December, a portrait had appeared on the Daily Express's front page. The resemblance was unmissable. When she'd been here about four days, recalled the hotel's manager, my wife said to me, I believe that lady is Mrs. Christie. Mr. Taylor thought his wife was being absurd. But she wasn't the only one to have worked it out. The following day, the Westminster Gazette reported that no fewer than 300 police officers and special constables had taken part in a search in Surrey. They were pretty certain they were hunting for a corpse. But Christie was oblivious. Life was much better now. As Mrs. Neal, she said later, I was very happy and contented. At Harrogate, she said, I read every day about Mrs. Christie's disappearance. I regarded her as having acted stupidly. A fellow guest remembered her saying that Mrs. Christie is a very elusive person. I cannot be bothered with her. Also, according to this witness, Christie was beginning to show signs of mental distress. She would press her hand to her forehead and say, It is my head. I cannot remember. Meanwhile, Archie, stressed and terrified that his infidelity would be revealed by the papers, had made an awful mistake. He had given an ill-advised interview to the Daily Mail. Perhaps hoping to divert attention away from Nancy Neal, he introduced the idea that maybe his wife had deliberately disappeared. My wife he said to a reporter, had discussed the possibility of disappearing at will. 
Engineering a disappearance had been running through her mind, probably for the purpose of her work. Personally, I feel that is what happened. And he now defended himself against the charge that he'd been a bad husband. It is absolutely untrue to suggest that there was anything in the nature of a row or a tiff between my wife and myself on Friday morning. I strongly depreciate introducing any tittle-tattle into this matter. Readers must have thought he protested far too much. On the morning of Saturday, the 11th of December, the Telegraph carried a big advert for a forthcoming serialisation of The Murder on the Links. It was trumpeted as the work of Agatha Christie, the missing novelist. These were obviously the words of Christie's publishers, not Christie herself. But readers could be forgiven for thinking the author was somehow cashing in on her new notoriety. The author herself had had enough of reading the papers. At the Hydro, on the Sunday morning, no newspaper was taken up to the bedroom. On the Tuesday, the Daily Mail ran an editorial. If Christie were alive, its writer argued, she must be ready to inflict intense anxiety on her relatives and heavy expenditure on the public in a heartless practical joke. Unfortunately for Christie's lasting reputation, many of her biographers, notably her male ones, have been as heavily invested in this narrative as the male police officers and journalists who made it into such a sensation at the time. She set out deliberately, the facts shouted, to throw murder suspicion upon her husband, says one of these writers. From there, the idea has spread into films and novels. The milder have her down as a woman wronged with an understandable desire for revenge. The more extreme, notably the feature film Agatha, made in 1979, present her as the would-be murderer of Nancy Neal, and so the injustice has been perpetuated. It's time to do something radical. To listen to what Christie says. To understand she had a range of experiences unhelpfully labelled as loss of memory. And, perhaps most importantly, when she says she was suffering, to believe her. Unbeknown to the police and public who were looking for her in Surrey, matters in Yorkshire were moving swiftly towards a denouement. That Sunday evening, two men went to Harrogate Police Station to report their suspicion that Mrs. Christie was staying in the hotel where they worked. Christie's disappearance had the impact it did because of the 1920s context that saw a new kind of media celebrity being created. She wasn't alone in becoming an author as celebrity. It may have been accidental and deeply unpleasant, but it would also become a central plank of her massive success. That was I Just Wanted My Life to End. What Happened When Agatha Christie Went Missing by Lucy Worsley. Read by Neve Kuzak. Now, at 10, the daughter of film stars Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith had enough of fame. Now 21, and with a fifth album out, Jess Cartner-Morley asked the artist, has she learned to live in the Hollywood spotlight? Read by Evelyn Miller. Eleven years ago, aged just ten and a half, Willow Smith was done with being famous. Off the back of her breakout hit, Whip My Hair, 
a Rihanna-esque banger that played on repeat across playgrounds and dance floors for weeks, she had landed a prestigious slot supporting Justin Bieber on tour. The whole family flew out for her opening night in Birmingham on the 4th of March 2011. She slayed that night and the next and the next. But when the lights went up at the end of the last European gig, she came off stage and declared, I'm finished, Daddy. I'm ready to go home. Daddy, also known as Will Smith, told her that no, she wasn't done because she had signed on for a slew of dates in Australia. End of discussion. Also, he thought, he wrote in his 2021 memoir, until a few mornings later when Willow came skipping into the kitchen for breakfast. Good morning, Daddy, she said joyfully as she bounced to the refrigerator. My jaw nearly dislocated, dislodged and shattered on the kitchen floor. My world-dominating, hair-whipping, future global superstar was totally bald. During the night, Willow had shaved her entire head. My mind raced. How was she going to whip her hair if she didn't have any? Who the hell wants to pay to watch some kid whip their head back and forth? I felt like I had no control, is how Willow remembers the incident today. That was the part that wasn't cool for me. I felt so powerless. But because I was so young, I didn't have enough experience for people to trust my opinions. So I just said, I can't do this. After that came maybe two or three years when I wasn't in the studio. I was just going to school and doing my thing, and that was really nice. But she missed music, which is a huge joy in my life. And I came to realise I love performing and recording. I just wanted to be steering my own ship. So, taking the preternatural poise and electric aura that powered Whip My Hair's more than 230 million YouTube views to date, she found her own path, navigating from pop through pop-punk to full-blown rock. Today, she bounces into a London studio fresh from a live set at Reading Festival, which came straight after a summer tour opening for Machine Gun Kelly in the US and days away from the launch of her fifth studio album. In front of the camera, Willow Smith seems older than her 21 years. She has a face like a cut diamond, with cheekbones that catch the light from every angle as if she is lit by her own personal spotlight. She arrived on set in oversized loungewear and vans, is unfazed to be handed a fuchsia pink leather Prada trench coat and looks immediately at home in oversized burnt orange Gucci tailoring. She poses with patient concentration, peeling off to roll her own cigarettes in a corner between shots. But when the crew are packing up, and it is just me and her, she seems suddenly younger. She ignores the on-set catering, avocado toast, yoghurt with chopped fruit and organic almonds, in favour of a ham and cheese toasty from Pret-a-Manger, which she eats standing up, leaving the crusts in the packet. Then she changes back into her own tracksuit bottoms and t-shirt, sitting opposite me with her hoodie balled up on her lap like a comfort blanket, bearing an intricately inked arm. I ask her when she got her first tattoo, 
the seed of life symbol. And she thinks for a minute and says it was about two years ago, when she was 21. This confuses both of us, because she's still 21 now. Yeah, it was on my 21st birthday that I got the first one. Huh, that feels like a while ago. I guess life comes at you fast when you are on the global stage. As it happens, Willow is the same age her dad was when the first series of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air taped in 1990. And the resemblance is, for those of us who have strong memories of that show, frankly uncanny. The almond-shaped eyes, affable yet imperious beneath long lashes, have the same heady mix of charm and glamour. But it is the gestures that are most strikingly similar. She has a habit of jutting her chin at the end of each sentence that is precisely that of Will sparring with Geoffrey. There is a bounce to her walk that has exactly the bumptious charm of the fresh prince himself. It took a while for Willow to make peace with her parents for having dismissed her anxiety as tantrums, but she has forgiven them, and both Will and Jada Pinkett-Smith have acknowledged their mistakes. Will writes in his memoir that his parenting philosophy at the time was based on pushing and prodding and cajoling people into the vision I had. But the incident changed his perspective. Earlier this year, on an episode of Red Table Talk, the Facebook Watch chat show Jada hosts with Willow and her own mother, Adrian Banfield Norris, she admitted she had a really difficult time relating to Willow's anxiety because she struggled to see beyond the privileges of her daughter's lifestyle and didn't know what it's like to be a child under hot lights. Emotional openness is very Generation Z, and Willow Smith is Gen Z to her core. From her tattoos and intricately curated ear piercings to the mononym, Willow, by which she goes as an artist, and the angsty all-cap shout of her new album title, coping mechanism. She believes it is important to express negative emotions as well as positive. I can't stay up in that ethereal, celestial, high-vibration, good-vibes place all the time. That's the place we all want to be, and sometimes you've just got to white-knuckle through. But at other times, you need to listen to your emotions, to learn from going into your shadow. Negative emotions can be cathartic. We don't always have the answers, and that's okay. Her mental health is in a much better place than it was a few years ago, she says. As someone who doesn't do well with being overwhelmed, she swears by meditation. Otherwise, I would go crazy. But there is a curious sleight of hand to her generation's predilection for earnest conversations around mental health. Willow prefers to talk about emotions in the abstract rather than divulge how they might relate to her own lived experience. For all her bravado about living life as an open book, Willow remains coy about the details of her personal life and relationships. In one episode of Red Table Talk, Willow talked about being polyamorous. Polyamory refers to people who have multiple romantic relationships at the same time. But when I ask if she still defines as polyamorous, she deflects the question. 
There are so many labels these days. The labels go on and on. I think I just like to be a person. I only like one label. Human. That sums it up for me. The more personal my questions, the more opaque her answers. I don't think it's anyone else's responsibility to understand you except yourself, she tells me at one point. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Jess Cotton Morley's interview with Willow Smith. In March this year, Will Smith derailed the Oscars and his own career in one shocking moment by slapping Chris Rock in full view of a global television audience. But before that curveball, Will, Jada and their three children had been steadily repositioning themselves from the traditional Hollywood MO of closely guarded privacy to a reality show adjacent openness with the media. In another early episode of Red Table Talk, Jada talked to her mother and daughter about losing her virginity and her addiction to sex toys. Willow responded by revealing that her introduction to sex was obviously walking in on you and daddy. Will wrote in his memoir about watching his own father hit his mother. He confirmed to GQ magazine in an interview the long-standing rumours that the couple have not always had a monogamous marriage. There was also a YouTube series, Best Shape of My Life, which ostensibly told the story of Will losing £20 in 20 weeks, but featured confessional moments, including a tear-stained acknowledgement of his failure as a parent to recognise and respect his daughter's mental health. By putting three generations of women front and centre in red table talk, the Smith family have established their own USP as distinct from the Kardashians or the Beckhams, emotionally literate, a little left of centre, open to ways of relating that don't fit within patriarchal traditions. Her lesson from red table talk, Willow tells me, has been that everyone will have a different perception on life, and that's okay. And you shouldn't try to change it. To agree to disagree can be a beautiful thing. 
It is quite the journey from Willow's California childhood, when the family lived a private, isolated life high in the mountains outside L.A. There is rich drama in how the cross-currents of the Smith family dynamic intertwine in ways both public and private. Willow and her older brother Jaden's names are spin-offs of Will and Jada, cross-hatching the genders and generations. It is an affectation in the same ilk as the Kardashians' penchant for names beginning with K, but, as befits the Smith brand, a little quirkier. I always knew I was very different from my parents, Willow says. But still, it is striking how the same motifs reverberate through the Smith family history. Hair, for instance, is a recurrent theme. Willow has shaved her head at other monumental moments, including once on stage during a live-streamed performance of last year's album, Lately I Feel Everything. In 2017, Jaden, a rapper, musician and model, chopped off his dreadlocks for a film role and took them to that year's Met Gala, carrying them on the red carpet like a clutch bag and prompting the late Vogue fashion editor, Andre Leontali, to pronounce approvingly, now that is avant-garde. And of course, it was Jada's alopecia that Chris Rock referenced in the joke that prompted her husband to hit him. Willow has made it clear that she does not wish to comment on the Oscars incident. I love my dad, is her response when I bring it up, from which point she retreats into a non-specific sincerity. I pretty much love every person I've ever met, she says. People are just humans. And humans are complex and beautiful creatures who deserve to be creative and to be respected and loved. And yeah, that's pretty much it. But then she looks me in the eye and polishes the silver pendant stamped with their birthdays between her fingers absentmindedly as she tells me that my parents are my best friends. They are both wonderful people. I love them not just because they are my parents but because they are Will and Jada, who have their own beautiful, complex and amazing minds and hearts. She is close with Jaden too, and with her 29-year-old half-brother Trey, Will Smith's son from his first marriage. At the Smith family dinner table, my dad is definitely the one cracking the jokes, she says. The kids are a little more subdued, a little more chill. My dad is the most hyper of all of us, That's why he's amazing, because he has endless energy. My mum and me and my brothers are a lot more emo and thoughtful about things. Willow's mum is her rock star muse. Jada Pinkett Smith formed the new metal band Wicked Wisdom when Willow and Jaden were two and four years old. Taking both kids along while the band supported Britney Spears on her 2004 tour and played Ozfest the following year. Pinkett Smith once told MTV that she started the band because she would always look at Axl Rose and say, why aren't there any chicks out there doing this now? Willow, watching Wicked Wisdom from the side of the stage at six or seven years old, heard people screaming slurs at the sight of a black woman rocking out with a guitar. Did she understand what was happening? Willow looks world-weary beyond her years. It's not complicated, even for a kid. 
you hear it and you think, okay, so they hate my mum because she's a woman, or they hate her because she's black. Her mum handled it like a champ, she remembers. It was crazy, it was intense, but she was so strong and focused. She was a beautiful trailblazer, and I will always be in awe of her. Willow has long experience of rubbing up against society's prejudices. There is an infamous 2014 interview in the New York Times with Willow and Jaden, in which she talks about preferring quantum physics and sacred texts to young adult fiction, and how she knows time doesn't exist. And Jaden tells the journalist that you never learn anything in school. It is an uncomfortable read. Is it fair to put a preteen on record in answering questions such as, I'm curious about your experience of time? To Willow, it is another example of the racism she witnessed as a child. I studied physics intimately for three or four years, she says solemnly. What threw people for a loop was that we were black kids being expressive. Society doesn't see black children in that way, and it was shocking for people. Claiming space in the rock world is a political act, Willow says, which is about stepping into places where marginalised communities haven't been accepted and saying, I'm human and I'm allowed here too. One of my favourite musicians, Sister Rosetta Tharp, was playing rock with an electric guitar in the 1940s. Blues was the birthplace of rock, but that history was put out of sight for social and political reasons. There are still many people who don't want people of colour, women, people of the LGBTQ plus community to rise and know their history. All of us should be allowed freedom to express ourselves in all kinds of different ways, and one of those ways is rock music. Music is not just music, it is also activism. Throughout history, music has driven some of the most intense shifts in humanity's thought processes. She name-checks Nina Simone's 1964 song Mississippi Goddamn, which became an anthem of the civil rights movement. That song illuminated the culture in such a powerful way. Is she enjoying the rock star lifestyle? She weighs the question for a moment and gives a more equivocal response than you might expect from a hot young artist with the world at her feet. Um, yes. But you know, it's a process. It's a journey. Sometimes it's rough, but that's what makes life beautiful. I ask about her home life when she's not recording or performing, and she softens. I live alone with a few cats and a few dogs. I'm like an old lady. I love hiking with my dogs, being quiet. She doesn't cook. Pasta for the win every time, because that's pretty much it. But reads a lot. On her bedside table right now... 1984. One day, she says, she might check out of celebrity altogether. Someday I want to go to college, she says. I heard about a guy who had a PhD in jazz guitar. I thought that was really cool. A PhD would be the coolest thing ever, definitely. I love physics and astronomy. She is beginning to seem restless, to fidget like a teenager wanting to get down from the dinner table. We say our goodbyes and she slopes off to find her tobacco. At some point in my life, I guess I might just disappear, she says. But not yet. 
That was, I always knew I was very different from my parents. Willow Smith on Anxiety, Activism and Family Ties by Jess Cartner-Morley, read by Evelyn Miller. Finally, from radical political activist to working with prisoners on death row, Buddhist nun Robina Cortin has learned a few things. Here she meets with Bronwyn Adcock to talk about suffering, happiness, and what Donald Trump can teach us. Read by Serena Mantegi. It's a Tuesday evening in the small country town of Milton on the south coast of New South Wales, and the scent of the freshly brewed chai and homemade soup about to be served is wafting through the drafts in the Country Women's Association Hall as discussion veers between death, killing, war, abortion, prison and suffering. Around 50 people, some long-time members of the local Buddhist group, others curious newcomers, are seated cross-legged on the wooden floor or on plastic chairs, a portrait of a young Queen Elizabeth II looking down, listening to a Buddhist nun. The topic for the night, how to stay positive in a negative environment. Our problem is we think the outside world is the main cause of our suffering and our happiness, says Venerable Robina Cortin, an Australian, now 77, who was ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist Gelugpa tradition in the late 1970s. We understand that when it comes to becoming a musician, that you program yourself and that you are the main cause of becoming a musician. The work is in your mind. You need precision and clarity and perfect theories and then you practice and practice. We know we create our own selves in that sense, she says. But when it comes to turning ourselves into a happy person, we do not believe we have this capacity. But the Buddhist approach is that we produce ourselves, whether it's a musician or a happy person. We're the boss. But what about all the extra suffering of the past few years? Asks a woman, citing COVID, floods and war in Ukraine. Cortin relays the story of two imprisoned Tibetan women who were tortured and sexually assaulted, yet were able to interpret this experience in a way that allowed them to bear it. The questioning woman looks dissatisfied. What is it? Cortin asks. Come on, say it, it's important. Cortin can be at once warm and piercingly direct. When a questioner interrupted her mid-sentence at the previous evening's event, she responded, Can't you hear I'm trying to answer your question? And it takes a moment for the woman to reveal what she's thinking. It just doesn't seem practical, she finally says. It is practical when you are being sexually abused in a prison, Cortin says. We have the power to change the way we interpret our lives, and they were able to do that. And they were even able to have compassion for their torturers. The result of this? They didn't lose their minds. It's not moralistic, it really is practical. Honey child, listen to me, says Cortin, softening. Our trouble is we can't cope with our own suffering, or the suffering out there. So we just want to make it all go away. We can't. 
All we can do is do our best in this crazy, insane asylum called Planet Earth. Earlier that day, over lunch, Cortin explains, I've always been involved in the world. I like the world and I like crazy humans. She's a newspaper and news junkie. Her favourite publications include The Financial Times, The Economist and The Washington Post. Cortin grew up in Melbourne, one of seven children in a rambunctious poor Catholic household, the naughtiest kid in the family. At 12, she was sent to board in a convent school. I was in heaven. It was bliss, she says. Not only did she finally have her own bed, but there was no chaos around me. I had discipline. I went to Mass every day. I was in love with God and Our Lady and the saints. It was perfect for me. In her late teens, she discovered boys. Realising she couldn't have God and boys at the same time, she very consciously decided, goodbye God, hello boys. A second-hand record, picked up for sixpence, led her to jazz. I got this seven-inch LP that said, Billy Holiday. I had no idea. I wondered who he was. That opened me up. Just blew my mind because it opened me up to this black American experience of suffering human beings. In the late 1960s, Courtin made her way to London, rough and ready for revolution. There, she joined radical left demonstrations and supported the Black Panther movement. In 1971, she started working full-time for Friends of Soledad, a British political activist group supporting three black American prisoners charged with the murder of a white prison guard. Then, she moved on to the radical feminist movement. Shedding her taste for men, she became a radical lesbian feminist, learned martial arts and moved to the US into a lesbian-run dojo in New York City. In 1976, Back in Australia, in Queensland, with a broken foot that stopped her martial arts practice, 31-year-old Cortin spotted a poster advertising a talk by two Tibetan Buddhists, Lama Yeshe and Lama Zopa Rinpoche, and decided to go along. That's when I found my path, she says. I was always looking for a way to see the world, why there is suffering, what are the causes of it and I think I'd exhausted all options for who to blame for the suffering of the world. Since she was ordained 44 years ago, Cortin has worked as an editor of Buddhist magazines and books. In 1996, after receiving a letter from a young Mexican-American former gangster serving three life sentences in a maximum security prison in California, she founded the Liberation Prison Project a non-profit that offers Buddhist teachings and support to people in prison. Cortin ran the programme for 14 years, assisting thousands of inmates, and she still stays in touch with her prison friends. Recently, she visited one who has been on death row in Kentucky since 1983. He lives in this garbage dump of a prison. No sensory pleasure whatsoever, the food is just horrible, no freedom to do much at all. He's seen as a monster, and he's this happy guy, she says. A practicing Buddhist. He's fulfilled and content. He's worked on his mind. 
accepted responsibility for his actions, and although he would love to be released from prison, he accepts his reality. I'm ready for that electric jolt, he told me. I ask Cortin if she feels any sense of anger about this man's plight. No, I don't. I try to help him where he's at. That's it, she says. I remember when I was a radical political activist in London in the early 1970s. That was when I was angry. That was when I was in a rage. Racism, sexism, injustice are just as bad now, if not worse. The prison system in America is fucking outrageous. But I work differently now. The trouble is, we conflate seeing a bad thing with being angry. We feel if we give up anger, we chuck the baby out with the bathwater. Cortin says she's still an activist. But maintaining anger is like stabbing ourselves with a knife. It just paralyzes you. Instead, she practices what she calls courageous compassion. There's a saying in Buddhism, a bird needs two wings, wisdom and compassion. Wisdom is the internal, putting yourself together. Compassion is when you put your money where your mouth is and help the world. Since the late 2000s, Cortin's lived out of a suitcase, teaching in Buddhist centres around the globe, only coming to a halt in March 2020 in Santa Fe when the pandemic hit. She started teaching over Zoom. I adore Zoom! And a friend set up and runs her social media. Her TikTok account, which has 85,600 followers, has short videos, sometimes responding to current events, with titles such as How to Live in This World Without Losing Your Mind. There's a way of using the world to develop your practice, she says. Take former US President Donald Trump, for example. I'd watch Mr. Trump and, instead of ranting and raving about how bad he is, I'd go, well, that's lies. I recognise that. That's anger. I recognise that. That's vanity. I recognise that. That's arrogance. I recognise that. There's not a single damn delusion Mr. Trump has that I don't have as well. The Buddhist view is that we all have these states of mind. We're all in the same boat. So then I go, thank you for showing me how not to be. Recently, Cortin shared on social media that her sister, Jan, had died after an accident at home. She says the huge response to her post touched me deeply because people were so kind. She got on a flight from the US as soon as she heard about the accident. Alongside her siblings in a hospital room in Melbourne, as Jan's life support was withdrawn, Cortin whispered the Buddhist mantras that accompany death while the rest of the family boisterously sang the Sydney Swans team song. Once Cortin finishes this current Australian teaching tour, she's moving to New York City, where she plans to settle. For the last years of my life. She plans to write and edit, continue her personal study and Buddhist practice, and teach via Zoom. Maybe I'll go out to a jazz club in the evening, she says, before adding... I'm just joking. I probably won't go to the jazz club. I'm going to try and not waste my life. Try and stay useful. Be useful before I drop dead. 
That was Honey Child, Listen to Me, a radical Buddhist nun on how to be happy in a crazy world by Bronwyn Adcock, read by Serena Mantegi. Before you go, we wanted to let you know about The Guardian and Observer's 2022 charity appeal. If you had to pick between heating and eating, which would you choose? As the cost of living crisis pushes 14.5 million people below the UK poverty line, more families than ever are facing a bleak Christmas. Please join us as we raise funds for charities working on the front line. All donations will go to Citizens Advice and Locality to help support local grassroots projects which aim to support those who have been hit the hardest. You can find the link to donate on the weekend episode page at theguardian.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's best of articles were read by Neve Kuzak, Evelyn Miller, and Serena Mantegi, and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.